You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome in to Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. We've got three topics for you, and we guarantee by the time you get where you're going, you'll be smarter. On this edition of Commute, in 2003, routers ran a story claiming that more people are killed by vending machines each year than are killed by sharks. But why do we fear sharks so much? This is a story about a shark named Bruce. Even if you never played the game Farmville, you probably got a few notifications about it on Facebook. But how has the annoying game shaped the internet that we use today? Every year, millions of people rent rooms or houses through Airbnb instead of the traditional hotel chain. But what happens when something goes wrong? Enter the black box security team. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, my boy, I believe we have uh, mentioned this on the podcast before, but I don't really like to swim in the ocean. Now, while the reason I don't like to swim in the ocean has more to do with jellyfish than with sharks, I nonetheless firmly believe human beings are not really supposed to be playing in the ocean. Jay, it's nature's buffet. Yeah, I mean, you take it a little bit too far, though. I mean, you're talking like, uh, you know, past the ankles, you're, you're out. But this was the beauty of innovation in the human race. This is why we made swimming pools. For this exact reason. So you don't have to swim where something could kill you. Well, Jay, regardless of how you feel about splashing around in the ocean, one thing's for sure. Sharks are terrifying and fascinating creatures. And one of my all-time favorite movies revolves around perhaps the scariest, most intimidating type of shark, the Great White. Jay, I am, of course, talking about the 1975 classic Jaws. Are you a Jaws fan? Yeah, I loved Jaws uh, whenever I saw it for the first time. Um, it was probably the first time that I can remember that a movie really made, like, you get that feeling of tension throughout a movie that lasts for a long time or, like, through a scene. You remind me of a couple characters from Jaws. You either remind me of Quint, who is the uh, crazy drunk who has the boat that they go out in, or you remind me of, I think his name was Billy, the little boy that disappears because he was eaten. Yeah, so it only took you about three minutes this week to get in a shot at me. Uh, that's maybe a little <laughs> bit sooner than usual. Well, Jay, while the movie is great, we can both agree on that. And the legendary story behind the film's star is just as good as the movie. A mechanical shark, or to be more accurate, a set of four mechanical sharks, affectionately named Bruce. Quickly, for the hopefully very small number of listeners that have not seen Jaws. Jaws is the story of a small resort town that gets terrorized by a huge great white shark during the 4th of July weekends. We just passed the 4th of July, actually. Oh, coincidence? I think not. Three men, led by police chief Brody, eventually set out on a small rickety fishing boat to hunt down the beast and save tourist season. Jay Jaws was nominated for Best Picture in 1975 and has been named a top 10 film by many publications, a top 10 film of all time by many publications, and still causes folks pause today in 2021 when they enter the ocean. And you never even see the shark for the first half of the movie. The movie, by many industry standards, should have failed. Steven Spielberg, man, back-to-back weeks talking about uh, old Steve, was not yet even 30 yet and largely untested. 
The film, based on a book, started filming, get this, without a script, a full cast, or the shark. Three original sharks arrived on the filming set in July of 1973. Jay, it was roughly two months after shooting had already begun. And despite the heavy hitters that were hired to build the mechanical sharks, all three of the original ones were constantly plagued by mechanical failures. But Jay, it's strangely because of this that the film was so scary and ultimately successful. Spielberg had to get creative. Whether it was using a fin or a moving barrel or just relying on the legendary Jaws theme song to build suspense, he had no choice because he didn't have a shark to show. The final result was a film that took 100 days over schedule to shoot, cost roughly $5 million more than the original budget, and became an instant classic. All three broken-down Bruce Sharks were destroyed, and a fourth Bruce was built to display at Universal Studios to promote the film in 1975. It stayed at Universal Films until 1990. And Jay, here's where the story takes an even more fascinating turn in The Legend of Bruce Grows. In 1990, the final Bruce, the fourth and only existing one, was trashed and sent to the U-Pick Parts Junkyard in Sand Valley, California. Junkyard owner Sam Adlin, though, knew he was onto something special. This was not trash. This was Bruce. Bruce was different. The shark hung in basic anonymity until 2010. Okay, so from 1990 until 2010, this junkyard, when an NPR reporter discovered it. From 2010 to 2016, the junkyard became a tourist destination. And then, when Adlin passed away in 16, the shark was donated to the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and refurbished in Jay. That's where our friend Bruce resides today. Do we know if there's like an alternate script out there? Like, has Spielberg ever said, like, hey, I, I wanted to put the shark here way earlier, but we didn't have it, so I had to rearrange everything? Yeah, Spielberg had to make edits on the fly because there were a bunch of places in the first half of the script where the shark was supposed to be shown. And, you know, I, I, it's funny. I've had this conversation with a lot of people, and nobody realizes that you don't see the shark until the second half of the movie. But then as soon as you tell people that, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that actually does make it better. The fact that you don't really know what it looks like, you don't know how big it is, you don't know how fast it is, you don't know anything about it, I think that's kind of the center of our brain that's getting played with when we watch Jaws, and that's why it sets it apart from other horror movies. So Dave, you and I have been using Facebook since the beginning, uh, whenever it hit the internet and it was only for college students. So we've kind of been around for the whole history of it. But do you ever remember a game that was associated with Facebook called Farmville? Do I remember it? Of course. I, I still how can't could you believe, forget it? I, how could I forget it? And, and when I think of Farmville, and I know nothing about the game. Okay, so I'm sure that you'll you'll tell me. Uh, but I assume it's kind of like a Tamagotchi. A gigapet, which we may do a segment on at some point. A gigapet was a little digital keychain pet that you you had to feed and take care of. That was it. But there was no point to it other than that you had to feed it, take care of it. It would poop, and you had to clean it up. It was the most useless thing ever. And I feel like with Farmville, it was oh, well, let's go out and plow. 
Yeah, some similarities there uh, for sure, and it's a really good harvest. <laughs> yeah, if you if you weren't on Facebook <laughs> at the beginning, you might not have you might have missed Farmville totally. So I'll tell you a little bit about what it was too, just so you can kind of fill in that information, and then we'll talk about why it matters. So uh, in June of two thousand nine, Farmville made its way to Facebook, and if you weren't one of the tens of millions of players, you probably are still very likely aware of its existence because of the. St- steady stream of notifications from your friends who played it. Uh, At its height, Farmville had 32 million active daily users and nearly 85 million users overall. And the game, which was created by a company called Zynga, came into existence at a time when online and mobile games aren't what they are today. You know, for the most part, social network gaming was unexplored territory at this time, and the playbook for how to navigate it had not yet been written. And although the game officially shut down at the end of 2020. Yes, people were still playing it. Uh, The way the game was designed lives on in nearly every corner of the internet. So the game, if you're unfamiliar with it, it requires its users to tend to a small farm by raising cows and growing crops and expanding land through upgrades that could be purchased through in-game currency that you'd earn for doing tasks or real-life money for a quicker payoff. So the game made use of what is referred to today as microtransactions, which are these very small upgrades that can be purchased with a linked credit card for very small amounts of money, usually like a couple dollars. But for hardcore players, these microtransactions can add up fast. Many former users report spending hundreds or even thousands of dollars over the life of the game game. The idea behind the game was to draw players into a social loop that was really hard to get out of. Like, if you didn't log in at least once a day, your crops would die. Uh, And then you could get extra help or you could save your dying crops by sending out invites to the game to your Facebook friends or posting on your newsfeed. Ian Bogost, a game designer and professor at Georgia Tech, says it this way. He says, The game encouraged people to draw in friends as resources to both themselves and the service they were using. It gamified attention and encouraged interaction loops in a way that is now being imitated by everything. So Farmville started a trend of social media-based gaming that would continue through the decade. Social media and mobile games were seen as games that had broad appeal, especially to people who were not interested in spending hundreds of dollars on an expensive PlayStation or Xbox. The gaming industry never quite accepted Farmville as one of their own, though, Dave. A Zynga executive was actually booed as he took the stage to accept an award at a game developers conference in 2010, <laughs> and the company admitted it had problems recruiting game designers. Can't you see him like coming up to the crowd? How we doing, Farmer? <laughs> yeah, they were, not, they were not down with it. And in 2000, 2010, Time Magazine actually named Farmville as one of its 50 worst inventions and pointed out how the game manipulated its users into clicking and spending through its system of very carefully planned rewards and punishments. And, you know, Farmville also taught Facebook some very important lessons. Vivek Sharma, a Facebook vice president and head of gaming, said it this way, said, I think people started to figure out some deeper behavioral things that needed to be tweaked in order for those applications to be self-sustaining and healthy. And I think a part of that is this idea that actually people do have a limit, and that limit changes over time. 
Critics pointed out that the game was never really fostering any real connection, which is what social media is supposed to do, but it was rather just encouraging players to mindlessly click for reward. Your social media feeds, whether you realize it or not, function in a very similar way that Farmville did to get you to spend more time on the app. Now, it may be more covert than a straight-up notification sent to friends, but the influence is there nonetheless. You know, he's passed away now. Um, but I wish I had the opportunity to, to ask him about this. My, my grandfather's brother, Fred, was a real farmer. I bet you just the thought of Farmville would have been so insulting to him. Almost got killed by a cow, too. A cow stampeded him and almost killed him. If that's not a real farmer, I don't know what is. This, I mean, Farmville could have been, you know, a nice way to relive the, relive the glory days, but just kind of in like a low-stress environment. Or could have been a really good way to connect with him. Like, oh, hey, Fred, yeah, I farm, too. Yeah, you and me, like, we, we share We're some simil- similar qualities. Like, I raise cows, you raise cows. So, Jay, I heard a podcast episode a couple years ago, and I've never been able to get it out of my head. The episode basically reported about the dark side of Facebook. Okay, it's all the extreme and inappropriate content that we never see. It never reaches our newsfeed because of people working behind the scenes to scrub it out before it's ever before it ever sees the light of day. So, Jay, I know we try to be a, a fun, light show, and we always somehow can spin it back in that direction, but there's some bad stuff out there and, and bad people who are trying to put that bad stuff in front of us on social media. Yeah, those are the real heroes in the trenches. They are, man. They're down there taking grenades for the rest of us. So, so with that in mind, so knowing that that kind of occupation exists, and I would imagine that has a very high burnout rate, uh, I came across a fascinating story the other day, a report about the secret PR team at Airbnb, a team referred to as the black box that takes care of incidents that happen at Airbnbs to protect the company's image and ensure that people like you and I will look into renting Airbnbs before we rent a hotel room on our next trip. So Jay, according to a report done by Bloomberg, this top secret safety team has been essential to Airbnb's growth, even though you and I have never heard of them. The entire appeal and business model, obviously, of Airbnb rests on safety and security, right? I mean, can you trust a stranger enough to stay in their house? For the Bloomberg report, eight former members of the security team and 45 other current and former Airbnb employees spoke anonymously, of course, about what exactly goes on inside the efforts to sweep bad Airbnb stories under the rug so that you and I never find out about them. Quickly, here's what Airbnb is. Okay, so founded in 2008, Airbnb has grown to be a major player in the hospitality world with 5.6 million listings and a $90 billion market valuation. The idea is simple. Someone lists their house on Airbnb for rent or even a room in their house, and you book it like you would a hotel room. They leave a key, they leave some instructions, and boom, you're in a house instead of a hotel room on your next trip. And it's typically cheaper than your local Marriott. So, Jay, it's not hard to see, though, why this makes safety complicated. You're dealing with real people and something they own. Airbnb claims that less than 0.1% of stays result in a bad ending, like the ones we're referring to. But with over 200 million bookings per year, that's a lot of mess for the 100-person safety and security team to clean up. And, Jay, these issues are serious that happen at Airbnbs. Anything from sexual assaults to murder 
Bloomberg even reports that Airbnb spends $50 million annually in payouts to hosts and guests to make these problems go away. Many of the issues stem from the hosts making duplicate keys. Keyless entry has been suggested as a possible way to resolve this, but as of this recording, Jay, no such legislation has been approved. I'm uh, starting to get a little worried that I'm going to get visited by this team in the middle of the night for us recording this podcast. They may try to make this go away before it gets out. <laughs> yeah, like people might turn on their podcast here in a couple of weeks and just hear static on this segment. So do we know anything about how they resolve these issues? Like, is it more of a bringing legal action type thing, or is it more of a settlement so it stays out of the news? Well, it, lots of obviously lots of different situations happen, so they're resolved in lots of different ways. Um, it could be a huge payout, a settlement, and then a non-disclosure agreement. Um, it could be a, we're sorry that you had such a bad stay. We're going to give you an incredible stay for free at somewhere much nicer on your next trip. Well, I'll only tell one story about Airbnb before we close it up, and it's obviously not as serious as the things that we've been talking about, but I stayed at one in New York City one time, and when I got there, like I booked it, and it it should have tipped me off already because it was only like $50 or something in New York City, and I was like, man, this is a great (laughs) deal, like all those those suckers paying for those hotels, you know? And, uh, and in the pictures, like it looked pretty good, you know, like it looked like, didn't look like there was anything wrong with it and looked like a nice cozy little place with a lot of character and went there, popped in and, uh, no, it was in this really creepy old, uh, basement that was not very nice, but I went back to the Airbnb listing and I wasn't even like mad at the person because the way that they staged the photos, it was the place. It's just that they staged it in a way that you couldn't really tell. Like it was very strategic how they staged it. And man, they got me. If you haven't gotten to the beach yet, hopefully the the Jaws segment scared you out of getting in the ocean. I'm just looking out for you. But that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say hey at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my man Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next Monday. Nailed it.